First John chapter 1. If you're a first-time guest with us today, we're certainly glad that you're here. And in the seat in front of you, there is a copy of the Bible that is our gift to you. If you're not familiar with where First John is, if you turn all the way to the back, you'll find Revelation and then turn a few books to the left, just several pages, there will be First John. The chapter numbers are the big numbers, the first numbers are the small numbers. We will begin in verse 1 here in just a moment. John, in his kindness and being under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has written this letter in a dark world uh, where there are false teachers who seek to draw away those who have truly rested their faith on Christ and to really ultimately rob them of their joy. He bursts in talking about the beginning and who Christ is and the fellowship that we have with God. And we have to remember that several years prior to the penning of this letter, there were shepherds out in a field keeping watch over their flock. And in a moment, an angel of the Lord, Luke tells us, around them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And the Bible says that they were filled with great Fear And an angelic host came and declared this to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And here, in this text, John presses into the full meaning of that declaration that this Messiah will be for the abundance of our joy. And he points to the reality that that joy is rooted in the fellowship that we have with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now John has already given the Gospel. John understands the group that he is writing to is a group of people who who have already received the Gospel. But again, he wants to press in to this angelic message of joy. And he wants to remind those who have received Christ that this world will seek to rob them of that joy. So they must cling to Christ. And they must know Him for who He actually is. With that in mind, if you would honor the reading of God's Word and stand to your feet this morning. John writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, starting in verse 1, and we will read through verse 5. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you. That God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. This is the Word of God to each one of us. May He sear it on all of our hearts today. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence trembling at the reality of Your holiness and Your glory. 
Father, we lament this morning the reality of trite and trivial preaching in the name of such a magnificent Savior. God, would You meet with us here today and crush our religious foolishness that we might know the joy of genuinely worshiping at Your throne for all of eternity in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What we see in this passage and in in, in what we've studied so far is this clearly, that we live in a dark world and that we need light. And that if we are to have real joy and fulfillment and fellowship, that that joy, that fellowship must be rooted in who Christ really is in a deep and abiding relationship with Him. Beloved, there are so many things this morning. I'm afraid that for far too often pastors have have presented the Gospel as being something that you can come to one church service, pray a prayer, and then go out and live your life apart from the people of God and the things of God, and you can still have true, lasting, eternal joy. And that is not what John stands to tell us this morning. See, the reality is, there are a lot of things that though we might not lose our salvation over them, we can be robbed of our joy and our effectiveness in bringing God glory because we buy into the silly myths of religious people. You see it all the time and in every denomination. We can be robbed of a true, vibrant, abiding in Christ. Jesus said that He came that we might have life and that more abundantly. But we know this. The darkness tends to creep into everything in our lives. We have to be careful. We must consider this one verse with great care and clarity. The first thing that we have to see as John burst onto the scene in his introduction, that which we was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John bursts in with that. But then he says that that joy is rooted in this one declaration. This, mes- this is the message which we have heard and from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. What John tells us so clearly in this opening of this one verse is this reality. The Gospel belongs to God. It is His. It is His message. And some will say, well, Jay, that's obvious. Doesn't everybody know that ultimately we must start with God because this is His message? Of course we have to begin our understanding of how to do life and worship and everything in our existence by beginning with the right understanding of God. That is just so obvious and clear. Is it? 
Because the reality is, 6,000 years of human history bear out the testimony that man tends to begin with man, not with God. Man's inclination is to start with anything but God. Take for instance the person who says, well, I have always believed in God. Now the trouble is, we who live in a day and age, there was a time period where you would have been thought a lunatic if you didn't concede the reality that there was a God. And I believe in eternity future, at the judgment seat, the grand, the vast majority of people, even those who will be sent into hell for all of eternity, will, will be people who were theistic, who conceded the fact that there, was, there is a God. And um, the, the, the fact is, we just find ourselves in this odd time where you are in a minority to even acknowledge the existence of God. And so we have this inclination when somebody says, well, I believe that there is a God and I've always believed that there's a God. And, and some people will say, oh, that's great that you believe that there's a God. The difficulty comes people start to lean in and describe who this God is. If you ask this whole nebulous body of people who are theistic, who say there's a God, if you press in on them and say, well, did He have a son? Most of them will say no. Or, or is God justified in pouring out His wrath on humanity for their unrighteousness? Most will, oh no. And so what we find is even people who say, well, I've always believed that there is a God. They've really never begun with God at all. They've begun with their own conceptions of who God is. They don't know Him. They've never understood who He is in the context of His self-revelation, of His Word. Or in the church today, often this statement comes from people who claim to know Christ. We're further down the road now. And they'll say, well, well, my God would never, and fill in the blank, my God would never have killed someone for simply putting His hand upon the ark. My God would never allow anyone to suffer. My God would never be unkind in any respect. Because my God, after all, or this, this is one of the, the more modern statements, my God will never judge someone for who they love. Men can marry men. God doesn't care because my God loves everyone. Or, 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 or you have a pastor who, who really sees that the call of Paul on Timothy's life to be rooted in doctrine and that by his teaching he will save both himself and his hearers is really an important imperative and so he starts to teach doctrinally and people will come along and say but, but doctrine really doesn't matter. My God's not concerned with doctrine. And, and the reality of those statements bears this out. That even when we come to the throne of God we don't begin with God. We begin with ourselves. We begin by wanting to convince ourselves that there is a God out there who will take care of my problems and do my will. But far be it from us to conceive of a God who has created everything for His own glory and His own purpose and has commanded us in His audacity 
to live according to His will. You can see I'm a little bit excited about this. It's because so many people are being abused under pulpits this morning. They're being harmed by being given trivial illustrations of uh, a fluffy God who would never offend them. All the while, if the people preaching would read their Bibles, they would come to the conclusion that we are moment by moment coming closer and closer to the judgment seat of a holy God. Dare not trivialize who God is. We must begin with Him in all of our thinking, not with ourselves. We must be very careful to think about life and about relationships and about our worship in light of who God is. But it's so normal for us to begin from the position of our own selfishness, of our own self-centeredness. We say, here I am in this world and I have so many problems, I have so many unmet desires, I've been treated so poorly, I lack so much, I'm just not happy. And if there was a good God, then then I deserve all of those things. I deserve material. Provision. I deserve happiness. I deserve that people love me. Oh, if they only knew you. But when we take this kind of attitude and we, 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 we make demands of God, when we come to Him and we say, What can I get from you? How can God answer my questions? Is he really going to fix my problems? When we come in that disposition, we are in a very, very tenuous place. Because the entire sum total of the Word of God speaks in opposition to that kind of thinking. This is how God deals with our problems. Take someone, let's think in the real world for a minute. Take someone who really has been mistreated, who has been harassed, who Satan has availed himself to every abuse possible on this planet. And friends, the world really does lie in the power of the evil one. There really are horrible abuses and horrible things suffered by our neighbors. And maybe this individual really just wants to have relief and wants happiness. He's lived in a dark world. He's been abused by a parent. He's been hated by a spouse. He's been rejected by his children. And he really just wants peace. Now if God really cares for this individual in His providence and kindness, and He decides to speak to these types of people, the question we have to ask ourselves is what would He write? What would be the very first thing? What would be His starting point in how He would interact with such a person? Would He write in this way, there, there, you poor thing. I am so compassionate. Would He write, 
you really just need to gain knowledge. And, and here, let me help you. Well, God is omniscient, but that's not where God starts. Or, or would He say, you are so loved? And friends, the reality is we can't comprehend God's love to its fullest. And yet, this isn't where God begins to deal with those who are in the darkness. He begins this way. Turn to Genesis 1.1. He begins simply this. In the beginning, God. He begins with Himself. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He begins with Himself. John, in the first five verses of his Gospel, begins this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And the Word excuse me, was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was nothing made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And here this morning, John comes and he begins us from the same starting point. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The Bible in God's message to humanity always begins with God as the starting point. And this is the way that we can identify cults and I believe the grand majority of Protestant evangelical America is falling into being nothing more than that. Consumeristic, cultish, personality-driven garbage. Cults and false teachers always begin with man. With his longings, with his desires, with his hurts, with his problems. And this is always the weakness of false teaching. Teachers of false doctrine, ultimately, they can't obscure the glory of God because the glory of God shines out through the darkness. They can't stop God's glory. They can't stop His holiness from radiating into all of creation. And so what false teachers have to do is eclipse the glory of God by inflating man to be bigger than what he really is and hiding the glories of God behind Almighty Man. Have you ever seen a picture of, of the moon sliding in front of the sun and all you see is a, just a, a, a very light halo where the sun used to shine? I believe that's a picture of the church today. Man has become so big in his own mind and thinking and religious reasoning that we tend to eclipse God's holiness and glory and we begin with ourselves and not with God. Beloved, isn't this what Satan did at the very beginning? There's nothing new. Do you not remember what Satan said to Eve in seeking to tempt her? You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat, uh, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. What is he doing? He's playing on Eve's pride. How dare God 
put you in this garden, create all of this for your flourishing, and then have the audacity to rule over you. What you need, Eve, what you need, Adam, is to be bigger, to know that you can become like God. And in buying into that, the entire sum of humanity was plunged into perdition. So the first test we must use when discerning truth from error is this. Does this thought, does this proposition, does this theological truth, does this man teach beginning with God? I think it's interesting, the interaction between, um, between Moses and God. In Exodus chapter 3, you remember uh, as Moses is there in the wilderness, he meets God at the burning bush. I want you to consider this narrative. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west of the side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to to him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning. And it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight. Why why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your shoes off of your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father. God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. And he was afraid to look at God. God tells Moses, hey, don't get too close. Be quiet. Take your shoes off. And Moses, in a right display of adoration to the holiness of God, bows his face reverentially towards Him. Can look upon Him. You know what modern evangelicalism would say to, to God if He showed up to us in that way? How dare God tell us to take our shoes off? How dare God? Does He not understand all that we've been through? I mean, really? He seems to be a little self-centered, don't you think? Taking up residence in this bush this way, scaring us, and then fill in the blank. That's how foolish we are. Because we begin with ourselves and not with a holy, triune God. We begin to think about God from our dead vantage point and not by looking into the pages of who He's revealed Himself to really be. Beloved, you've heard me often say that our theology matters. And it does. And here is why. Because doing theology requires us to take all of our education, all of our philosophy, all of our political viewpoints, and stand there in silence. Theology, theos, the study of God, to begin with Him. Be quiet before Him. To let everything that we understand about this life flow out of an understanding of who He has revealed Himself to be. Why are there so many Christians defeated and without joy this morning? Because their pastors are feeding them man-centered thoughts that rob them of their joy. Because they don't 
begin to understand their circumstances in light of a sovereign God who is ruling and reigning over all things. You see, the reality is, beloved, all of our problems as humans start with us. Every solution begins in God. The Bible says that man was created in God's image. And instead of living in humble submission to God, he rebelled. He considered himself equal with God. I can eclipse God. I can be on the same level. You remember what, what Paul wrote to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 2 about Jesus? About the second Adam? About the one who is not like you and I? Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That one phrase, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was God, and yet he did not live in such a way to seek to eclipse the will of his Father in his living. But do you know who does think in all of our sin that we can be equal with God? Every one of us. When we look at the commandments and the statutes of God and what He has told us in His Word and we think, oh really? That is to foolishly Consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. The Gospel comes to us this morning and says that you and I need to stop thinking about ourselves so much and be still and consider God. The psalmist that said, be still and know that I am God. Even in that statement, we get the understanding that to think rightly in this fallen world, to have real joy, our thoughts must begin not with ourselves, but with God. And again, the reason why so many can't find joy is that they have never found the end of themselves. They make man big and God small. Beloved, the reality is this. The Gospel, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, God loves you enough that His Gospel doesn't coddle you, it confronts you. You are a sinner in need of the forgiving mercies of God and you must turn and receive Christ and Him alone. Otherwise you will perish in your own trespasses and sin. We are not the point of the universe. God is the point of the universe. The message is what John is saying. And this is the message that we have received. Jesus came down. We have a message that is alien to us. It's not our message. It's His message. And if we're going to live our lives with real complete joy, we must receive that message with humility. We must not only start with God, then... We must also accept Him as He has revealed Himself to be. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And we must ask, who is this God? What can be learned about Him? What does He command of me? This again requires us to come and to put down our own 
denominational preferences and our own viewpoints on the world and our own opinions and to be still before the Word of God and to allow God to have His perfect work in our lives by His revealed Word through the work of His Spirit. The church today, beloved, is full. Well, it's full of a lot of things. But it's full of opinion more than anything about God. Rare is the church who actually is discerning the person and the character of God from the pages of Scripture. We think God is captive, I believe, to our religious liberty. Now we celebrate the reality of that freedom at such a cost during this Memorial Day weekend. But beloved, I want to promise you this. The holy God of heaven is not held captive to our religious freedom. Our religious freedom should be held into captivity of the Holy God. We should consider who He really reveals Himself to be and live in light of it. You see, so many people will say, well, I don't like dogma. Dogma is simply defined this way by moderns even. A principle or set of principle laid down by an authority as incontrovertibly true. I love dogma. Amen. As long as it's God's dogma. Right. You see, the problem is when someone says, I don't like dogma. Now, there's a right way to say that. I don't like all of the nonsense that man has made up and heaped on Scripture. But the reality is, I think far too often... What is really being revealed from the mouths of people, well, I don't like dogma, is what they, they should just be honest. I don't like authority. That's right. I, I just prefer to live life according to who I think God is. The problem is, is the God that you perceive in your own strength, by your own finite reasoning, according to your own will, is not a God who will save you in the end. And after all, beloved, look at verse 5. Is verse 5 not dogma? This is the message that we have received. And we proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. John doesn't come and say, I have this great idea, church. I think this is who God is. John doesn't come and say, look, I, I, I spent a lot of time reading and processing the Greek philosophers and thinking through the academic system and considering all of the political movements in our day. And here's a God I would, I would have you consider. Try Him on, and if He doesn't work, maybe you, we'll, we'll just come up with a different one. That's not, what, that's not what John is doing. He's being dogmatic here. This is the message we have from Him. That He is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Hard stop. Amen. That is His message. He's being dogmatic. And praise God for our joy He's being dogmatic. There's only two positions in this world. We either regard the Bible as the authority of our lives, or we trust in ourselves and other human ideas. And I pray for this church often that we would be the former. That we would know God truly in a dark world. 
And to have that kind of joy, we must start with God and we must receive who He really is from the pages of Scripture. And some of us might come to this and say, isn't this a contradiction? I mean, John has said, he's led in with this this just beautiful opening and then he's landed in verse 4 and he said that he wants our joy to be complete, fully filled. But how in the world does this bring us joy? I mean, we're full of darkness. We're sinners. And you're telling us that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. How can we really be filled with that message? If we really... The moderns write this verse, they would say it this way. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you. God is love. This is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you. God is mercy. This is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you. God is compassion. Now none of those things are on their face wrong, but we have a starting point here. And John jars us back into reality by beginning this way. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. This is where John starts. Not with God's power, not with His greatness, not with His love, not with His knowledge, not with His wisdom, not with His gentleness. He begins with His Holiness. God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. What John is telling you this morning, if you take nothing else away, write this down. When I come to the understand, my understanding of God, when I begin to conceive of who God is in His love, in His mercy, in His compassion, I must think of all of those things first and primarily in the category of His holiness. I must think of a God who has holy love and holy mercy and holy compassion. Not love and mercy and compassion that's divined by my generation, but by the One who is before all generations. A writer of Hebrews understood this in chapter 12 in two places. He writes, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then in verses 28 and 29, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. He is holy. He is other than all of creation. So somebody's going to stand up. Why does all of that matter? Glad you asked. Why do we start with God? Why do we receive what He has revealed to us in Scripture and allow that to be of the authority? Why do we have to begin with the idea of God's holiness and our conception of who He is? Well, there are several reasons. First, because our fellowship really does matter. Remember, our joy is connected to a genuine fellowship with God the Father 
and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And far too often we see in this world that if man is left to his own devices and if we think about God in terms of what we understand in our natural mind to be love and mercy and compassion, then what we will, what we will create for ourselves in the fellowship that we have with God will not be the one true triune living God, but nothing more than a vain idol. We will conceive of a God who would never offend us. And all the while we will live our lives offending Him. We can have fellowship, beloved, with a false God according to our own false views. But if God is light and He is, then He exposes all of our vain religious conception of what He is about in this world. And if God is light and in His holiness He reveals who He is and He confronts us in the pages of Scripture and He calls us to worship, then our worship must not be according to the dictates of the consciences of men, but according to the Spirit and His truth. So our fellowship really matters in light of God's holiness. Secondly, it encourages us, God's holiness encourages us not to blame God in times of trouble. Far too often in the church, the question is thrown at the pastor, why would God allow this? Why does God not stop this? Why would God not positively do that? Why has God not given our group, whatever it is, X, Y, or Z? If God were good, He would, and fill in the blank, all of those things can only be said when the holiness of God is in the margins of our mind. Because the reality is God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And so in a dark and depraved world, no matter what darkness touches our lives, we can trust this. There is not an ounce of darkness in God. You know, there's a way of illustration of how this text really plays out. We can hear God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And we can think of that in a shortstop method. When I was a kid, how many of y'all like lima beans in here? See, we can have unity in the church. I didn't either, so I'm with you. And my mom would take me to the grocery store. And, and, and one time I remember distinctly, they were out of lima beans. Now I went home thinking, who bought them? <laughs> but that's beside the point. In that moment, the grocery store didn't have lima beans. But the fear that immediately racked my little childish mind was this. One of those big 18-wheelers is going to pull up and have a whole load of that nonsense. But beloved, the point of this text is we don't have to live in that way in light of who God is. We, we don't look at God as though in this moment there's no darkness in Him, but we're waiting and maybe at some point God will be corrupted by the darkness. That's not what John is declaring here. He's saying there is no capacity. There's not even a place on the shelf for darkness in God. He is light. And He is overcoming the darkness by His presence and through His work and word. And so as we experience difficulty and hard providences, we dare not turn back to God and say, you are responsible for evil. No, we can say, God, you are sovereign over all the darkness. And however you choose to use it in my life, if it is for your glory, may your name be praised forever. Amen. 
Beloved, it also, God's holiness also matters because it is the only way to true joy. The Puritans understood well that there are ways to false peace and false joy. There are ways to absorb ourselves into what we think is good and right and true about God and disregard who He has revealed Himself to be in the pages of Scripture. And we know that in the end, Jesus will say to many people who claim to be His followers, depart from Me, I never knew you. Those people who are full of false joy and false peace. I believe the most dangerous thing is for people to believe that they are right with a loving, sweet, sentimental God of their own making when the God of all the earth has sworn to vindicate His holy name. And that's why John goes on in chapter 4 and don't get excited, we'll get there in a couple months. Chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Even that statement comes back to our joy. If we're going to have real joy, we have to know the true God, and the true God is a holy God. Jesus didn't come to give us joy for a time, but lasting eternal joy for all time. Lasting joy is found in a God who is light and in whom is no darkness at all. We can sum all of these questions about why this matters up into one question. Why does the holiness of God matter? We can reduce it down to this one question. Why the cross? Why the cross this morning? Why at the apex of the Scriptures this morning does the cross stand as the emblem of our punishment and our shame of the retribution and the wrath that was due to each one of us. Why the cross? You see, if you start with God, with Scripture, with His holiness, you will understand that the answer to that question. But if you do not start with God, if you don't start with Scripture, if you don't start with the holiness and the righteousness of God, you will never be able to answer the question, why the cross? Because if God is only or primarily love and mercy and compassion, all He needs to do is just by divine fiat forgive us. Just to say you are forgiven and it's done. But the cross stands this morning as the, at the pinnacle of Scripture and as the, the, the emblem of Christianity and in our own lives as a reminder of our need for redemption. It stands there this morning because our God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. He cannot merely pass over sin. He has to deal with it. Sin Darkness can't reside in the presence of His holiness. And it is the holiness of God that demands the cross. Now we know why modern man doesn't need the cross anymore. Work it backwards and you'll see. Individuals who say that they're not interested in the cross are individuals who who are declaring to you publicly that they don't need the holiness of God. Man thinks starting with himself at the center. And he thinks God must be loving and merciful. 
But the reality is the Word of God reveals that our God is a holy God. Our God is a consuming fire. And He can only forgive sin that He has dealt with. We must start with the holiness of God. Otherwise, the plan of redemption, the scheme of salvation, becomes pointless religious drivel. And I say that with all humility and reverence. God is holy. And because He is holy, He demands 100% perfection. He demands that no darkness would reside in you in eternity. So here's the question this morning. Are you ready to stand before the holy throne of heaven? Do you consider that you could say, in me resides no darkness? Of course not. We are all sinners. We are all full of darkness. And that leads us to a problem. We need someone to stand in our place and bear the penalty for that darkness. And the only one that could have ever done that was the spotless Lamb, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The holiness of God demands vindication for every sin. Every single faultless, foolish sin must be atoned for. And Christ is the only way. The cross is the only way to appease a holy God. John really wants us, beloved, to have joy that is complete. He wants our joy to lack nothing, to be overflowing. And that joy is only found when we come to a God who is light, in whom is no darkness at all, and we bow to Him in repentance and faith, and we receive the salvific work that His Son purchased through His own blood on the cross. Why does holiness matter? Because the cross stands this morning and begs us to repent and believe. Do you pray with me? Father God, help us to be a church that starts with You in our thinking and begins to understand Your holiness, that You are different, that there is no, not even an ounce of unrighteousness in who You are. God, might we, even who are in Christ this morning, bow on our knees and give thanks for who You are and what You've done to ransom us from the pit of hell through the work of the cross. In Christ's name, amen.